0: My guest today on the Wonder Dome is Brandon Peel, and I loved having Brandon because he's the kind of thinker who has built his profession around moving towards the, the most important, most critical, and often very uh, triggering cultural and political topics. He was referred to me by Reggie Mara, a past guest who wrote a book on America's collective shadow, the ways in which we've been shaped as a nation by our unwillingness to look at the awful, violent, horrific things we've done to build what we now call America. And Brandon is also someone who's willing to look deeply and critically at those questions. He comes in through the lens of purpose, really explicitly, not only what does it mean to look at our shadow, but also what does it mean to anchor in what might be highest and best for this invention, of a nation, America, i pluribus unum, out of, which means literally out of many, one. What does it actually mean to build a national identity that that is willing to look at the horrors of our past and is also willing to try and heal them and learn from them and actually build the america that exists in the minds in our minds and hearts as opposed to the america that exists right now that is fractured and fractious and polarized and increasingly descending into a breakdown so brandon and i have a really evocative conversation and he's been thinking really deeply about these questions and he's unafraid to let questions of spirituality and identity And history sits side by side with questions of politics and um, work and capitalism and economics. You know, he sees the ways that these are all interrelated. And um, he sums this all up in a a beautiful possibility, in the metaphor of of the bison, which you'll see if you go to his website and you'll see on his books as an alternative to the metaphor of the eagle where the eagle is a raptor and a solitary hunter who scavenges and takes and then retreats. The bison is um, its a herd animal who moves together, but also each individually has power. So there's something about the individual and collective power that calls us into relationship with this land that we all are trying to call home. And uh, yeah, I just really am sitting, as I say it out loud in this moment, I'm sitting with the potential for that and Brandon's willingness to lean into these questions with both courage and with humility. So why don't we get settled in and hear what Brandon has for us. Hi, Brandon, (laughs) that Zoom shout. (laughs) <laughs> always, always hits us hard doesn't it <laughs> mm-hmm. yep Doom will let us know that this recording is officially in <laughs> progress welcome man good to see you yeah thanks you too Andy yeah I'm so glad Reggie introduced us um, for those tuning in uh, I had a conversation a few months back with Reggie Reggie Mara and exploring his book about healing America's narrative and it was a really juicy conversation and i said i said reggie who else should i talk to on this on this thread line and he said you got to talk to brandon so here we are yay i'm really curious the one of the things that got me to say to like i mean i trust reggie so even if i hadn't read this i probably would have be talking but i went into your website and saw all of this imagery of of bison's buffalo. And I saw you have this book, Purpose Work Nation, where there's a kind of herd of of these bison, snowy bison on the cover. And what's that about? And as I kind of dug in, I saw that you have a point of view that the bison is actually, as like we have the eagle everywhere. Uh, That's sort of the seemingly the metaphorical animal that America has associated itself with. But you're saying, that's not that's not the animal. You're saying it's the bison, and uh, that really struck me. That kind of made me sit up a little straighter. I wonder if you could speak to that now. Tell maybe maybe say why that why that shift from the eagle to the bison, and and maybe also share a bit about like how that insight came to you, like when when that landed in you, and what that was like when you had that insight.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah. So in Let's say this is like the spring of 2016. I was in the middle of a eight-month purpose guiding certification process. And we did this eight-day intensive where the last day was essentially a 24-hour quest. And you know, we find our quest spot out in nature. But, you know, the whole week is really preparing for it, setting up the problem statement for our souls and what we have to like articulating the threshold. And for me, it was like I needed to let go of my anger towards capitalism, towards uh, abusers, um, towards all sorts of, you know, folks who are creating a lot of harm in the world, whether they know it or not. And the arc that I was stepping into was compassionate leadership. How can I lead with my heart? So, yeah, the quest, you know, in silence for 24 hours, a diet of, you know, vegan, no news, just like me and nature, with nature Mm -hmm. being the conduit for the soul. Mm -hmm. And one tiny piece of backstory is, in the men's work that I've been a part of for a while, we have uh, resource within or kind of animal energy that we uh, cultivate or connect to. And I had released the animal energy that I was working with prior, and so part of my quest was like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: "What's my true? What is my true name?" Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. during that quest, I began, you know the. Chanting, the drumming, the lament, the crying, the wailing, talking to the trees, and the wind, and you know, the animals, and I said, "What is my true name?" And what came through was Buffalo Heart. I'm like, you know, skeptic immediately goes online, like, "Yeah, right, sure, it's Buffalo Heart. Like everyone's a bison or a bear or an elk or a moose or a this and." A... Like what about you know, snakes and, and the grasshopper? Mm, mm, mm. And um, so I said, you know, because I had been in such deep communication with the trees and the leaves, I was like, I need to leave my sit spot and go put hands on trees to confirm or, or deny. You know, so I went to the first one, I'm like, am I a buffalo heart? Nothing. You know, second one, nothing. It's either between the second or third or third and the fourth. But as I was walking to that tree, what came through was the second part of the name. And that's who loves and holds, H or W H O L E, holds the world. Mm -hmm. And it's just like my whole body just like collapsed. Like legs just gave out. I was just on the ground, like crying. and, And, you know, part of it's like spiritual terror like oh that's a lot fucking hole how do i hold that um and so you know just kind of held it lightly like all right what does that mean and you know in the coming months and then in just a few months later you know deep into the new york times it's like obama signs a partisan bill to make the bison the national mammal of the united states i'm like really interesting and again just kind of held it lightly like not kind of rush into meaning making just like wow like Mm -hmm. why did that happen and this is at a time when like everyone hated obama like (laughs) people on the the left and the center definitely the right you know birtherism like you know mcconnell's just trying to like kill everything (laughs) and um so It was interesting that it was bipartisan, and also in partnership with the Intertribal Buffalo Council and a couple other um, First Nations organizations. Um, And so in 2020, uh, when my heart really started to break for the United States, um, I don't need to list the reasons why, they're all well known, Uh, I started writing Purpose Work Nation and began to study in greater depth like the behavior and the implied ethics of the bison and i was like wow this is a far better match for the stated purpose of our covenantal nation than the eagle and so just kind of you know shorten this up eagle solitary predator uh steals from other birds uh takes its feast uh to this high perch to enjoy with just its bloodline mm-hmm. uh, avoids any responsibility for its actions, which I mean, it's an eagle. It actually doesn't have any responsibility, but just like as a metaphor for human yeah. behavior, like, yeah. like wow, uh, and just like a, you know, just like the distribution of wealth and the power in the nation, it's white on top, brown on bottom. I'm like, this is like. The metaphor for our nation's collective shadow like wow. you know as reggie so beautifully articulated in 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 high depth like, that's pretty terrible <laughs> well i mean i mean shadows aren't terrible but it's like it's like good that we have something that represents it uh but then contrasted with the implied ethics you know from the behavior of the bison you know keystone species when they show up everything flourishes mm-hmm. They're wallowing, they're charging, they're stampeding all that stuff. They regenerate uh, every ecosystem they touch.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to, just to interject for a minute, as I understand it, it's yeah. like you reintroduce buffalo to a region as a keystone species, what you're talking about, this regeneration just kind of just starts to happen. There's mm-hmm. something about how they interact with the land that makes space for all of these other all this other life kind of up and down the chain to, to show up again is that right mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah they have they have some kind of sense i don't know if it's you know an olfactory sense or spiritual sense but they know where water is and mm. so they'll just like start digging and stream will pop up insects birds uh and yeah so so it's through their relationship to water uh and also the way that they graze, the way that they wallow and stampede, it, it creates all this biodiversity, you know, because they're basically
0: digging up the soil, mm. like allowing mm. death and mm. life to like start to happen. Mm. Um, they're t- they're like tilling the land just by their presence. Basically.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it doesn't just stop there. I mean, they're also very like, you know, they're, they're kind of an 800 pound gorilla, so they're not too threatened by anything else. So they share pretty close proximity with other Deer, moose, uh, elk. And you know, again, I'm projecting or intuiting, you know, that's that's a fairly inclusive way to go about things. Not like, get out of here. This is my dream. <laughs> uh, you know, and this has made itself known now, but it didn't used to be known. But like bison, when a storm is coming, they run into it. Versus cattle who run away. And the reason they do that is so they can get through the hard suffering quicker, as opposed to prolonging it, um, Oh my
2: God. <laughs> which
1: is, you know, a very apt metaphor for the harsh truths that this nation needs to face, you know, our, our, our original sins of Native genocide and uh, slavery. And as we've seen lately with all the ESG, DEI, anti-woke backlash, like Bunch of cows. There's a bunch of cows running. Along. It's not going away. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. Like it's like mm. it's gonna get you. Mm. And they're like, no, it's not gonna get me. I'm gonna go to Florida and
0: everything's gonna be fine. Oh my
1: god.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I can't. because um, especially because climate change is a hoax, and Florida will totally be here 50 <laughs> years from now. <laughs> the oceans are not rising. Not gonna happen
1: yeah it's not not rising we're not going through a mass extinction extinction everything's not on fire underwater
0: you know <laughs> wow um but i mean yeah, so, th- I so uh, there's a there's so much here brandon i want to like i'm just kind of like basking in your journey your personal journey in the way that this this men's work you were doing created an experience where you could sit and ask the question what is my true name i mean just that like just that we were to pause there and go what what would America be like if everyone took the time to ask that kind of question? That's a really interesting line of thought. But you receive some download, you received an information, you held it lightly, and then something starts working at the national level. This bipartisan bill gets signed, you write this book, and you're starting to see that there's this, there's this kind of alternative metaphor that is really vibrant and vital and alive, and you're out there advocating for it. Um, I wonder, I wonder, and you're sort of making this kind of playful, like, and the people who are running away from this truth, they're running away, like cattle run from the storm. But like a part of me, like when I hear you say that goes like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If it, I don't know if it's like, is, is it a running away? Like, it's more than just a running away. It's a, it's a, it's a like, we are going to enact policies that, that say the storm isn't real, <laughs> Like, like we're going to, we're going yeah. to do everything we can to keep the storm just where it is, and make sure it doesn't upset any of us, because uh, we can't talk about this shit, and we can't. It's not real, and it's you know, like so. The back, like it's not. It's not like I don't know. There's something in this. Like it's more than just running away. It's it's like say. Oh, so yeah. what's coming up for you as I share that?
1: yeah I mean, it's like uh it's hubris, it's sophian. I mean, it's just like you're 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 trying to do something to like keep white voters comfortable enough to stay in power and like uh yeah, I mean like the the, the chasm between actual beautiful conservative values and the way that it's it's being. Herded or manipulated mm. and twisted mm. and, dis- and distorted is like growing ever wider by the minute. I mean, mm. so yeah, I uh, it's not unexpected. Um, we've been down this path before, we fought a war around this stuff. Uh, and if are you familiar with the, the fourth turning or fourth turning is here? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. so there's you know, whether or not that has any credence but you know we go through these cycles of like like fighting over who we are yeah um and we're we're in the in the thick of the fight right now mm. it's like you know do we mm. transform and fulfill this beautiful purpose and follow the guidance of the of the bison or do we like say no we don't want to do that <laughs> mm. Mm. and usually usually you know the moral art bends towards justice Mm.
0: yeah so there's there's something in here let me just sit with it for a minute that feels really like i'm noticing some excitement in me and also some fear in me so let me see if i can speak to that like the fear is i'll have to kind of share a bit of my worldview here but i sort of Mm -hmm. have a world view that more and more is getting activated. That in a way uh, are are very useful adaptive inclinations to organize around authority, to have um, you know what's in a really robust, healthy sense to have kind of alpha power in a group of people, and and this alpha power, if you really look at the research, is not the like chest thumping strongest takes all the all takes all the goodies for himself, although that can happen in groups. But actually like the most successful alpha leaders, uh uh, uh men and women leaders, male and female leaders, are uh, the ones who smooth over conflict and help restore harmony to groups and help um, help the group function over a prolonged period of time, including in disruption. So So if we, like, just look at all the studies of our closest cousins, chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas, we see that really good alpha leadership is actually a a move towards including the group in a way that uplifts the group. And and harmful alpha leadership is a move towards consolidating power for self. And, And evolution did this beautiful thing of, like, kind of building in an upper ceiling to like if someone starts to try and grab too much power the group is collectively strong enough to kind of like kick that person kick that ape in the ass and go like uh uh-uh. uh mm-hmm. no you don't get to be alpha anymore cuz you're not doing a good job and and i feel like the trap we've fallen into is we've scaled so large that the the those who are hungry for power see all sorts of ways to manipulate our natural trust and in, in, in leadership and abuse it and misuse it. So like to go back to your metaphor, it's like we are kind of being tricked and hurted and told that there's this terrible thing coming that that is going to be fascist or something like that, which in turn allows for real fascism to like arise. Like that's the that's the ultimate trick of the fascist is to point at the other and go, if you let them take power, fascism will come. And I feel like that's the fear I have is that in an effort to... Pretend the storm isn't there, we'll go all the way down the kind of totalitarian rabbit hole. And, yeah. and whew, that's that like scares the shit out of me. And, and the excitement I feel is like you saying, we actually have uh we actually have metaphors, we actually have wayfinding ideas, we actually have examples in nature of how we could be differently with our strength and power. Like we could actually, if we chose, Create a world where all life thrives, where the the bison and the elk and the birds and the insects can all just like be by the river together and realize that there's everyone can have that and that no one has to die for that. Like, so that's like, so the gap between those two, it sort of feels like it feels like we're moving in the totalitarian direction to me. That's my fear. And I like excited for the regenerative direction. And I just wonder like, what's your, what's your relationship to that fear? How do you, or, or what I'm saying, what's coming up for you as I kind of share those two pathways?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have, I mean, that's what keeps me up at night is the, the, the price of, of failure it likely is going to land a lot less on you and I and mm-hmm. more on women, people of color, LGBTQIA plus folks, immigrants, poor folks, all that um so I I'm to I'm gonna I'm gonna kinda swing 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 to that in right. in a little bit of a roundabout way, but like before the settler colonialists came here, this happened all the time. Like a a, a chief uh, would get over his skis and middle of the night after a council like it's time for new land and those who wanted to try something different they just go over the hill to the next river yeah and that that was it and like all right well so what didn't work about that let's try this few generations same thing repeats itself time for new land and luckily there was so much space Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. and because they had these councils Mm -hmm. every single night I mean, just, like, imagine if Congress met every single night to talk about how well things are going, right? (laughs) Every single night around the fire. That would be cool. For, you know, at least a couple thousand years. And the result is that they ended up developing uh, approaches and policies around the sovereignty of children, of women, of natural life, of regenerative land management, of, like, all these, like, core aspects of a functioning democracy that, you know, mm-hmm. rolled up into the Haudenosaunee great law of peace that Franklin borrowed generously from and informed our constitution. And so like the, the true heritage of this land is democracy. I mean, mm. like, we, did, mm. we did this here. Mm. Uh, and it's not just here, but other parts of the world too. Mesoamerica was a very brutal, um, you know, democratic playground because there's so much uh, abuse of power there, but so to to bring back full circle to where we're at in this moment, like we don't have another hill to go over
0: every single There's no no new country to move to at this point.
1: Yeah, it has been monetized, so we have like a a constraint problem that requires us to do this in a way that isn't bioregion dependent. We actually have to do this while staying in proximity, working with each other, voting with each other, loving each other, marrying each like, And so there's, this is kind of new territory mm. for the democratic experiment. Um, and our Constitution, as beautiful as it is, is actually the oldest democratic constitution.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: And many other democracies have been like, that one didn't work, here's a new one. <laughs> We're like, no, 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 that one is sacred you can't touch it <laughs> so uh, wow so we, so, mm-hmm. so we have a lot of like gunk in the works and mm-hmm. I think that's what like folks like Reggie and myself are trying to just like you know clean out the gunk and a lot and allow the like the social the cultural the spiritual evolution to continue mm-hmm. so that it gets expressed as policy as national character as um, you know we'll just it expresses our beautiful purpose you know. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. credit equal, life liberty in the pursuit of happiness. E pluribus unum. Like those three things need new structure, mm-hmm. and probably need a spiritual revolution as well, because mm-hmm. you know, as I think it was uh, Whitman talked about democracy living in three planes, like like the construct, the idea, the constitution, the economic expression, and then the spiritual mana mm-hmm. that binds us to this. Kind of shared goal, and mm. that's gone. Well, I don't even know if it was not really there. Um, and of course, as we know, the the mid, middle level isn't working out too well for most folks either.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. So if if I could somehow give you the means, some sort of magic wand to summon the metaphorical and maybe I guess perhaps real bison back to the land on mass. Like what's your sense of if you if you had some levers that you could start to pull or some places where you could clear the gunk out and just really get in there without I, I mean to so, to just to put to put it another way, the people who want power kind of recognize either explicitly or intuitively that keeping the works pretty gunky helps them stay in power. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, they don't want anyone getting in there and taking a the close, <laughs> they'd rather it be gunky. And, yeah. and, and distract and confuse and kind of point fingers to the other. So it's easier said than done. But if you could get in there and start to clean out the gunk, like where for you are some levers of, uh, of possibility that you'd start to pull? Um,
1: so I am not uh, a constitutional law, political scholar or anything like that. So I'm going to stay away from that. Um, part because that obviously needs to change a lot and I should be talking to somebody else about that Um,
0: noted fair
1: (laughs) (laughs) but what what, what I do hold is that we get the leaders and the policies we deserve and you know the, the shadows that Reggie talked about like that's our work that we have to do individually and collectively and not that many of us are taking that on Um, and in terms of how we might, uh, shape and nurture the excavation and integration of those shadows, historically there's been more or less like three main institutions like education, religion, media, and those have been on a multi-decade long slide. doesn't mean they're part of the solution but you slide, want to slide look at...
0: down just because people can see your hand A multi decades long slide down
1: yeah slide down yeah downs, yeah. <laughs> yeah um and i think for each sector there's probably a strategy and my colleagues in the bridging alliance and the uh, listen first coalition are looking at sector by sector strategy um and i could hypothesize what they're talking about based on conversations i've had but the, I think there's a there's a, a few big levers to lean on. One is the workplace, and that's you know, place I've spent a lot of time working on for the last few years. Because that's it is where we spend our time, two thousand hours a year there versus like twenty to hundred a year doing literally any one thing else, whether that's civic organization, religion, even wow. exercise. I mean, like
0: that those numbers again to uh, the average person employed person spends two thousand hours a year at their job and only 20 to a hundred hours on whatever else might be anything
1: else yeah oh so God. from a theory of change perspective if you're going to uh, invite people to grow and develop, transform their shadows uh, step into who they really are their purpose and values you know, find their unique connection to larger sources of meaning, like the organization's mission and values, the nation, humanity, cosmos, etc. The theory of change has to go through the workplace. Doesn't mean the other sectors shouldn't be involved. they absolutely, I mean, it's all hands on deck right now, but if we don't get that right, we don't have a theory of change and we have the Republic breaking down, you know? Um, so, I think a lot of attention needs to be placed there. Um, that's with leaders, organizations, business organizations, like just and and they're they're emerging. You know, B Lab, conscious capitalism, net impact. Um, where I think it's it's going to be harder, uh, but no less important, is in education around like mm. redoing civics because mm. it's not mandatory. Uh, so most folks don't even know what the purpose of the United States is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, let's just start basic. Most folks don't even know how many States there are, or like mm-hmm. you can name seven other than their own. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. like the level of civic ignorance is astounding. Um, so a lot of my colleagues are working on the, the education sector to like get least some understanding of what is this game we're playing why are we here we have a covenant you know we're only one of two nations that has one which means it's like it's not an ethno state it is a covenant like a marriage based on a, a commitment and, and ideals mm, and
2: mm, mm.
1: we are that but none of us have taken our vows other than immigrants doing a naturalization mm-hmm. like nobody is said, i'm here for this
0: so, yeah, can we just slow down on that a little bit? Like that actually yeah. this might seem obvious to you because you've been living in this world, but this this insight that that you said there are only two nations you're aware of that are covenant nations, covenant states. Mm-hmm. What was the other one? Israel. Israel.
1: Mm. Now, they they are also ethno-state, apartheid yeah. state. Yeah. They aspire to a set of principles and to to fulfill them not just for themselves but on behalf of the world. And just like the United States, I mean, we're not just playing this game to, you know, save America. It's like or make it great, but like we're trying to show like what multiracial liberal democracy actually looks like. That's Mm. really what this thing is about. Mm. Mm. But nobody's been like, sign me up or Nope, I'm going to go to <laughs> go to Israel or India or some other place that doesn't care about inclusion and equity and
0: collective flourishing. Wow. So at least in part what I hear you saying is like the that workplaces and and spaces of education could be a place where this covenant actually gets renewed or revitalized or or at least just seen and engaged with uh and that that could that could have real meaning and power is that right Mm -hmm.
1: Hmm. yeah and Mm -hmm. you know and there's stuff for media and journalism to do and for religion to do and but yeah i mean the workplace i mean that's where all those norms are either edified challenged or renewed that's where billions of dollars a year are being already deployed for belief and behavior change and like, why not start where where we have the greatest? So, I mean that that's kind of my 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 current thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think be, so. That you're regularly bumping up against like the maybe yeah. the not so hidden covenant of like I don't know what the right word for it is, like you know the almighty dollar, the bottom line covenant, the like mm-hmm. this. You know, I, I mean for me, often when I often hear people say things like this is a bit, one of my pet peeves when they say, you know, like, Oh, uh, you know, like we don't do therapy at the workplace, you know, that we don't like that. this is not leave your baggage at home. Like this sort of like very, um, I don't know. It's like this, it's this fantasy that, uh, is driven by the almighty bottom line that somehow, even though you're, uh, uh, an organization that's been imagined out of whole cloth, you know, like there's no Google doesn't exist without the people who work at Google. But somehow it's somehow it's its own entity by law, which is a whole nother thing we could get into. But like it's this imagined entity that's only alive because there are people who work there. And this fantasy that somehow when the people show up there, they suddenly are no longer people. They are just a job description or a role. They are A function like that that that's a version of this like we're going to run from the storm we're just going to keep not looking at the fact that we have uh human beings constellating this organization and you're saying like no we got not only do we need to look at that but we could actually leverage that like that's actually our secret superpower is that you have real full creative three-dimensional human beings with all of their grit and grace and silliness and mess like it's all there Mm -hmm. so how like what's it like for you when you're sort of making this case to an organization to say you're sitting you you're actually standing i don't know at like the front line of what's possible for the human species as an organization and the way that you're going to flourish as an organization which will also help our country flourish and the world flourish is to help every single person in your organization flourish. That's your sales pitch, and you get some like, no, that's not our bottom line. Like, what are you talking? Like, how do you hit? Ha- like, what's that like for you? How are you working that edge?
1: Um. So, it uh. I have a love hate with it. Um. I love it in that like when I guide a group of CEOs into a deeper connection, their own purpose. i are like, wow, that's what, you know, that constellates everything. This is really what it's about. It's about collective flourishing. And then I'm like, well, everyone you that works for you also has the, the same beauty inside. They also have a c- hmm. civil human right to discover and, and give that. They're like, like it just like, like wait a minute wait a minute it's not just me like the special ceo people who are like no 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 everybody else so i love that moment and i'm frustrated by at least my current capacity or intelligence or you know insight on on how to like carry it through um so like they have catharsis, and as you know, catharsis is great, but only in a container of integration. Yeah. And otherwise so, you
0: feel really great and then sooner or later yeah. you just go back to business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, a
1: lot of the research says that, that that's often within twenty four hours. Is that right? Hmm. Yeah. So um yeah, I'm duck and and I, as i shared with you i'm i'm envisioning what that integrative supportive um container of care would look like for mm. leaders cuz mm. and I, I and i also suspect it has to involve capital as well because if if capitalism keeps saying quarterly earnings quarterly earnings quarterly earnings and you know annual review annual review and, and like it's just even if something beautiful is emerging, with external investors, it 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 makes it really hard for them yeah. to actually do that. I've seen yeah, there are actually like up.
0: laws about shareholder kind of mm-hmm. um, financial success. Like, if a CEO makes a decision that is arguably goes against shareholder profit, they can be ousted.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, even if that that CEO has that that awakening moment and doesn't just go back to business as usual 24 hours later, like really starts to, to make some choices. Mm-hmm. There are other stakeholders with with law at their side who can say, uh-uh, I want my money.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we've seen it with like pretty powerful success stories and then shoot the messenger uh, that follows right after that with uh, Paul Pullman of Unilever um, I think I have that right. And then the Best Buy CEO Hubert Jolie, like they've been like, "All right, I'm rich enough. I'm gonna like run with this humanization of the organization." And they do all this great stuff. People flourish. They they hit their numbers. And then bo- there's there's board activism, and they're kicked out. So, like I think there's gonna be something with private companies. Um, you know, probably the you know during the relinquishment of of those enterprises to the to the scions of Gen X and millennial, uh, and so I mean I'm spending a good amount of time there, like speaking to Vistage groups, like, trying to work my way into some of these other CEO forums that are mostly private, like don't mm-hmm. have don't have they uh, don't actually have exter- shareholders, yeah, external investors to appease. Um, mm-hmm. And I I think there's a role for private equity to play in this too. I've been like, Mm. like Mm. next next week I'm going to talk with a guy who works the private equity funds. I'm like, you know, you can get a 2X return in five years, which is a private equity return just from purpose and belonging. Like, why isn't there a a PE fund Mm. that is taking Mm. extractive, dehumanizing companies and turning them into generative, flourishing, sustainable companies? Mm -hmm. And so uh, there, there could be there could be a role like use finance to actually like expedite this trend transition of ownership.
0: There's mm-hmm. a question in me. I'm just trying to feel into it. Do you have a sense of the scope of kind of I don't know how we could define this scope in terms of like size of the company or or kind of profit of like, you know, revenue of the company, but like, do you have a sense of the scope or the balance between public, publicly held organizations that have shareholders who can uh based on their based up by on law kind of make choices about what's most profitable for them versus what's best for the company versus these private versus private companies that aren't like do you have a sense of what that balance is in terms of uh, the overall sector? I should know that. Uh
1: But I think it's less than 50% are publicly held. Less than 50%? Um, Yeah. Mm. Um, Now that doesn't mean they're not private with external investors. A lot of PE companies own these companies that are basically having the same, actually even worse, (laughs) impact on the companies. Um, But what I do know is that right around 50% of Americans work for small, medium-sized businesses. So. I, I don't know what number it is, probably somewhere between like 40, 60 either way of yeah, like, yeah. who has external investment and who doesn't. Wow. But either way, it's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. especially yeah. like, like I, I think there, there's something powerful with these local CEO groups mm. because if that can be nurtured at like a bioregion, you know, metro area.
0: Yeah, like they, the are, top they top. are kind of reg- generally regional groups, right? Like yeah. they're small to medium businesses who impact a certain like state or region or, or mm-hmm. metro area. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if we can get like the top, like the 20
1: largest private employers in a, a key demographic, then that begins to show a, a use case. Uh, because it's not just like those organizations and those people who are thriving, but like they're better partners, better parents, better community members. It, it there's huge ripple effects. And so I, I think there's something to like the bioregion metro um, theory of change um, because we, we've had enough national news. Like I said, like purpose, meaning, sustainability, ESG has been so well covered in the business media, national business media for uh, at least a decade now, but nothing's changing, you know, and mm-hmm. like we're seeing that backlash. So I think if there's something at the regional level, we could, we could, we could see something powerful.
0: Yeah. All right. So, so like thought experiment, I've got good news, Brandon, I've got, I've just booked you for a week long retreat with one of the largest CEO groups and pick your favorite region. I think you're in the Bay area, in the Bay area. Mm-hmm. You've got a week long with these, I don't know, there's a hundred CEOs in this group. What are you spending your time on with them? What's the, what's the, what's the pitch or the play or the experience or the opportunity there?
1: So there's no one size fits all. Uh, Cause each organization is coming into or each leader is coming into the uh, conversation with you know, different levels of maturity in terms of like living wages, parental leave, uh, transparency, sustainability. But I think there are three big buckets that they need to move through if we're, if we're going to talk about a maturity model of sorts. Mm-hmm. The Leaders first have to get their own purpose and values. And then from there, look at purpose-driven leadership and I've got five practices that I work with folks on and then from there it's looking at purpose driven organizational transformation so now that we've brought the hearts and souls of everybody out how does everything need to change Mm. Um, Mm. there's a book that came out I don't know 2017-18 called Bullshit Jobs you heard of it
0: I've heard of it. I haven't read
1: it, but yeah. Oh yeah, man. Of, uh... Uh, uh, The author, D- David Graeber, is probably, will be regarded as like, even though he's a anthropologist, will be re- regarded as like, you know, the Adam Smith of future generations. But
0: Yeah, totally. I've, I've read, um, what is it? The the two Davids, Wingrow and Graeber, their book, uh, History of mm-hmm. Everything. Was that what it was called? I'm getting that right? Dawn of Everything. Dawn of Everything, yeah. 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 So just the... I can imagine the uh, the sort of brilliant, cutting insights of a book by him <laughs> called "Bullshit Jobs," but maybe give us a little flavor of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I won't talk about everything in that book, but you can pretty much get the gist of it from his essay uh, called "Called Bullshit Jobs" from 2013. Um, but essentially, in most organizations, 50% of everything that's done is bullshit. Like serves no purpose, uh, could go away tomorrow and nobody would notice. Uh, you know, it's just like it, 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 these roles and responsibilities exist only like to edify uh, somebody's perceived power differential mm. um, in, in their mm. respective chiefdom. Mm. And so so that's just kind of one frame to look at it. But like, what if we then empowered everybody in that organization to kind of look at, all right, what, what brings them alive? What do they want to do, you know, and create roles around souls, rip out the bullshit and like reconstitute the organization as something that is designed for human flourishing that optimizes for purpose and belonging and sustainability versus extraction and and perceived power. Um, So I'd, I'd want to move them through that. Um, And that's, Can you give us some examples of
0: like some of the bullshit? I'm sure some people listening are like, oh, I know what he's talking about. But this feels really important. And also maybe where the the allergy, we might call it, the allergic response to this work shows up because in a way what you're you're saying is, hey, person or people who have built uh, quite a lot of your sense of identity, maybe not all of it, but you're spending 2,000 hours of your year every year trying to edify your power. Like that's basically the implicit and sometimes explicit message of your organizational culture is be the, don't be the person on the bottom. And Brandon comes along and says, dude, can't you see how bullshit that is? And a lot of people are like, <laughs> yes. But some people are like, who am I without my power? I want this power. It feels good. I like it when people do what I tell them to do with it. Even if it's bullshit, maybe even if, because it's, you know, like, because it's bullshit. I like that. You know, like there's, how do you like, uh, yeah, play with that a bit. What do you do with that?
1: Well, yeah. And and I think, I think that's a piece of the resistance is that I think on some level, everyone knows that a good portion of their day is like a a shit sandwich. Like I have to do this for the investors. I have to do this for HR. I have to do this for compliance. I have to do this for, you know, because my unit head, Thinks it's important. Um, so there's, you know, an internal knowing. Sometimes it's, um, you know, they, conscious, but most of the time it's at least partially unconscious. And then because of the central role that work plays in everyone's life, right? It's not just paychecks, but it's mortgage, healthcare, children's retirement fund, sense of mm-hmm. self, you know, mm-hmm. belong. It just like covers and mm-hmm. covers and covers like the bulk of the human or of the American experience mm-hmm. so if there's something wrong with that or meaning like if that that goes away tomorrow what are they left with mm-hmm. and so I, I think there's that that deep mm-hmm. fear um, at executive mm-hmm. level but uh, specifically with like mid-level managers who like literally don't do anything just kind of roll up coach guide provide reporting and um, that, uh, yeah, it'll all be for nothing. They've wasted the better part of their lives to mm. do something that had mm. no generative impact on anybody.
0: Mm. This feels really important. Like Like, if we actually start with the assumption that most of us, like, and by most, I mean, like, I don't know, 98% of us would actually, if we're really honest with ourselves, love to live a life that is fun and meaningful and when it's hard we're not alone in the hardness like that we're connected and we belong and yeah life has a lot of suffering but we can handle it together and and like yeah most of us would like that but like the sort of sunk costs socially that we've all put into this this fucking game that we're all playing together of like okay now I'm 42 and you're telling me that the past 25 years of my professional life have all been like bullshit Thanks David Graeber but like no thanks. <laughs> I'm just going to I'd rather not look at that actually because that would hurt yeah. too much to really admit that and embrace that. That's a pretty big moment of humbling. Have you ever held anyone in that moment or like been with anyone who's kind of gone like maybe in a, maybe in an executive who who has to also reckon with the fact that they have more influence than the average person on the like day-to-day bullshit. What's that mm-hmm. like for someone who wakes up to that?
1: I've not had the bullshit jobs conversation with CEOs. Mm. Uh, So I have had it with other folks, and generally there's a lot of resistance. Like, um, now with CEOs, they get how (laughs) shitty their jobs are. They really get it. Like, they're. You know, health is failing, marriages are falling apart. Um, they have to fire friends all the time. And it, it's like, like, so. Yeah, the, just to be clear, like the
0: CEO job, although it often gets lionized and sort of like, you know, uh, look at all the, or like villainized or whatever, like the average CEO is dealing with a lot of bullshit themselves because they're like mm-hmm. standing in a position of of highest authority inside of this bullshit structure. Mm-hmm. is that right
1: yeah. yeah yeah so when i have the opportunity to lead them into some purpose work and they get their power and they get that they could have more fun and the company will do better um that's that's really exciting but i haven't i haven't yet had the opportunity to press the issue on the bullshit jobs because I, I i actually don't think that comes first. That comes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. after their purpose mm-hmm. is embodied and integrated. Mm-hmm. After like the rest of the leadership team starts to do the work, after they start to practice purposeful leadership, then the organizational trans transformation happens. But so I don't lead with that. I don't lead yeah. with like it's gonna be
0: terrible for you. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I mean like that. What? You know that, that's not effective? No, that's all right, got it. This is really cool. So there's like In a way, an organization that starts to really tap into purpose, if it does that well, it has to look at its day-to-day operations and go, how much of what we're doing is purposeful? Like kind of rather than how much of what we're doing, like in a way that's asking in parentheses, how much of what we're doing is bullshit. And if you see something that you're doing that isn't serving this purpose, then, then the work, which is not easier said than done work, but worth doing is like, okay, how do we drop the bullshit? Or, or put another way, how do we make this more purposeful? How do we take what you, Brandon, you, Andy, you, whoever in your role, what, what would it look like if your eight hours here every day was on purpose? Yeah. And then you've got to design yeah. for that and maybe also manage some of the losses because change provokes that. People are going, wait, am I going to get fired? Am I useless now? You're telling me I don't. Have any purpose like all of that stuff so it's like treading gently but intentionally into that space follows from accessing purpose is that is that is that right
1: yeah absolutely and and it actually manifests in leadership and in, in organizations like really quickly with with startups so teams of like 20 to 200 like because they're always pivoting, rethinking things. Like as soon as Purpose comes online, they're like, "Okay, let's invent this process. We don't need this one anymore." All right, let's. see. Mm-hmm. And it, it it ripples very, very quickly. And I suspect it could also ripple quickly in just companies of that same size, you know, up to like five hundred folks who are just you know owner led. Um, but I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. But that that's where I think there could be a a big big win.
0: Amazing. That's awesome. Well, I know you're sort of continuing on that journey, but I can't like, please, please keep me in the loop. This is, this is close to my heart too. the stuff that we're talking about. Um, We only have about maybe 10 minutes left together. And there's one thread we haven't picked up, which I think intersects with all this very clearly, which is you've also uh, spent some time kind of at the civic level attempting to gather people with your civic Saturday fellowship to talk about America and to talk about being American and what that means. And the, like the heartbreak of that and the, and the possibilities of that. And um, you've done something like five of these gatherings in the Bay area. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. One,
1: well, three in the Bay area, one on the East coast and then one was virtual. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah. Um,
0: tell tell us more about
1: that yeah I'll I'll just share a little bit about Citizen University so I was born after the 2016 election uh, started by a a former uh, Clinton administration person uh, Eric Liu who I regard as kind of one of the you know like the, the leaders of like the great civic faith if you will and he and his wife started Citizen University because he's like what happened here was not just an election loss, but was like a a coup, um, or at least a tangible expression of like civic faith is gone, because you know three quarters of folks either didn't vote or voted for somebody outside the establishment, Trump mm, or Bernie. Mm, um, mm. So he's like, well, let's stand up an or- organization and and play, like let's develop some programs, let's try to figure out. You know, where we can make a difference. And they've got a number of programs, but the one that I was in was called the Civic Saturday Fellowship. And it's basically to train regular citizens like yourself and me in hosting civic faith gatherings. So, modeled on like a traditional religious gathering of sorts. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. there's civic scripture, there's civic songs, uh, there's a lot of discussion in pairs and small groups. Frequently, food, music, and all mm. that kind of stuff. Um, so, when I first heard about this, I think it was 2020. I was like, "I got to do this." But then, COVID. I'm like, "I'm not doing another damn thing on Zoom." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On. Yeah. I feel that. Uh, so, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. <laughs> and so, uh, once I started doing them in person again, I applied and got in. And um, so, we we trained up in Seattle for a week, and then. Uh, we then started designing and recruiting and partnering and, and leading these gatherings. And I think now there's 200 uh, fellow alumni and like 12 current ones. Um, and so as I was thinking about mine, I was like, you know, we, we have this opportunity between Juneteenth and July 9th to create an intensive period of reflection and reckoning because, you know, Juneteenth obviously, um, is very important and a new national ho- holiday July 4th, our independence. And then July 9th, the anniversary of the 14th amendment, which mm. some regard, cause it was right after the civil war, some regard as like the rebirth of the nation we really started to take all created equal. But you know, Lincoln called the central tenet of our ancient faith seriously like, okay, we are actually going to do this now we're going to free the slaves we're going to create structures militarize the south and try to like make it so the black folks can live a great life um so seeing that they're all clustered in this three-week period i'm like all right well let's mm-hmm. let's do mm-hmm. our gatherings around each of these three days and so on the first one i did um Plurbassunum, uh, unum, looking at kind of the deeper spiritual power of loving one loving another as much as oneself. Uh, and then on July 4th, I did it's kind of like a, a purpose audit of the United States it was looking at life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and what those words actually mean and how we're doing in, mm. in terms of our act against those things. Mm. And then the last one was I, I ended with the uh, with all credit equal. Um, it was a powerful experience. I mean, they weren't heavily attended. Each gathering had between like four and six people, um, mm-hmm. mostly progressive. Although, you know, I invited lots of other folks and folks walked away with A, an understanding of what our purpose is, B, a connection to each other. Uh, and I would say like curious in the conversation of like what it means, like choose this covenant, like. Like mm. I didn't, we we didn't have a marriage ceremony, but (laughs) I feel like something like that needs to happen. And Citizen University does something similar. It's like a a new kind of citizenship oath sort of,
0: right? Which I think, as you, I can't remember if you said this on the recording or not. But like the only people who who I think this is what we were recording. Like only right now, people who become nationalized citizens from another country take this like say an oath to the covenant. mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. those of us born here. Never asked to, nor never given the opportunity to sort of make that choice. Just sort of like, yep, here's your smartphone. Here's your <laughs> here's your standardized test. You got to pass. All right, good luck. Get to work. Get to work. Um, yeah. So,
1: like, I think the power of that uh, of a Civic Saturday type gathering depends on a previously established uh community and Mm -hmm. since i just moved back up to the bay i didn't have that um although i invited you know everybody like my sustainable business community my men's work community yoga community and like who came was who came and it wasn't like a robust showing but if i was like say part of a a faith group or civic organization i think these types of gatherings live really well there because this kind of thing can like strengthen the ties to each other and also to what the organization is about um so in that sense i think i i I failed but um Mm. in terms Mm. of a powerful experience i i had a good time everyone else had a
0: good time what's your sense i mean i hear you i honor the part of you that feels like ah this should have been dot 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 more people more expansive whatever The vision is really powerful to see that insight. I want to celebrate like, oh, there's this, these three really important dates in our collective history that are all like within a three week period of each other. What an opportunity. So, you know, there's maybe some seeds that you've planted that might bear fruit later. We'll see. But, but I'm curious, setting aside some of the like, oh, it's a new community. This is it. You alluded, I'm getting to a question. Let me see if I can get, kind of get my hands around it. And this and this might be our, our last or second to last kind of question here, given the time. But you alluded to the like gap between what you describe as kind of really beautiful conservative values and the ways that they're being enacted to hurt. like people who, who say, at least, they say I'm a conservative, but are enacting these really regressive, hurtful. Sometimes, you know, arguably fascist policies, right? And that, that like, there's a way in which the value, conservative values are being um, weaponized, or, or I don't know what the right word is, but you see where I'm headed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I got to imagine that there uh, are people who, who identify as conservative, who um, see at the very least problematic that some of their values are being used in the way that they're being used in the public sphere or are at least maybe more generally going like ah, something ain't working. But <laughs> like, yeah. like, and I know it sounds like those folks didn't show up to your invitation. And, and if you could have, if you could have gotten them there, do you, do you have a sense of like, what, what would be possible if we could somehow actually get a group of progressive so-called progressives and so-called conservatives in a room to actually have the fucking talk. Mm -hmm. Like what would that look like? And, and, and what would you hope for there? What's possible there that you're sort of reaching towards?
1: Yeah, that is like the big question of the broader movement of, I think there's about 300 organizations that are trying to do this, uh, Including Citizen University and my company. And, um, so, if you could get them there, uh, typically the issue has to matter. It has to be issue-driven to both parties or to mm. both, both mm. groups. Mm. Like, so it's usually something local, like having great schools, homelessness. You know, it, it's it's. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then there are all these processes of like uh, deliberative democracy and and active listening and all this kind of stuff that that helps people understand why people care about what they care about. Um,
0: So that feels important because usually we have a story like, I think you care about what you care about because dot, dot, dot. But I don't actually know what you really care about and I don't know why you care about it. I just have some vague stereotype or impression or idea about what it is so that like a big part of it is just it sounds like slowing down and actually surfacing that and naming it
1: yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and that's that's a skill set most folks don't have outside of like people who are you know on like leaders and organizations that have had to like learn this stuff or be trained in it so if it happens once and somebody has the catharsis, what happens? <laughs> 24 hours later, going back to hating the libs and the, and the <laughs> magas. And, and, and so it's like yeah. there are a series of best practices for transformative learning that um, I, I talk about in my book uh, that can apply in any situation. But they first have to have that thing they care about mm. that, they, mm. that they do have in common. They have differing views on how to achieve it. Uh, and then they need to meet together in small groups over time, usually like between three and six sessions, of truly start to feel connected to one another's purpose and values. Um and that's what most folks aren't doing. Like mm. nobody's sign- nobody's offering mm. that. Nobody's mm. signing up for it, the exception of me and a handful of other or our mm. company and a ha- handful of others. So yeah.
0: Like we're doing it. It feels wrong, to me like to- <laughs> well, it feels to me there's a connection between that and the insight you've shared already about the covenant. Like if I, you know, my, my wife and I, we've been married for 10 years. We've known each other for 20 years. I mean, there have been times where we've had to like sit at the dining table at late at night after the kids asleep and go like, what is going on between us? Hmm. Like the waters are choppy. And then we can both, we can both take a breath and go, we made it, you know, we made a vow to each other and we have this history with each other that even though this moment is hard for whatever reason, it's hard, we're going to talk. And it feels to me like that's part of the, maybe part of the catch 22 here is in a way, the invitation you're making to people either implicitly or explicitly is like, Hey, make a covenant to each other. Like let's, you want to make America something, whatever it is like, well, come make it, come here with other Americans and make it with each other. And that means listening and talking and, and understanding and like, no one's ever really asked anyone to do that. So it's a weird, yeah. it's actually a weirdly foreign invitation to go, wait, that's what I'm supposed to do?
1: Get married to like yeah, 300 to other get, million like, people? Or at the very least,
0: I feel like I want to get divorced from this person, but we still have kids together, you know, like, yeah. and our kid <laughs> is this country, our kid is this, like, you know, this, our neighborhoods, like we still, so there's something about that willingness to come to the table with a kind of aggrieved partner mm-hmm. and have the hard talk. In service of the greater value made to each other or your family, like that. That's I want more of that in this country. Actually, I find myself as you describe that, and then I respond to it. I'm like, I can feel a longing there. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: And perhaps, ironically or not, a lot of that conversation actually comes from the right. Like Gingrich was talking about the contract with America. Like, let's let's get in bed together. You know, MTG is saying, let's divorce. Like they're <laughs> so like, it, yeah. there's something in the water. People are recognizing they're married, they're co-parenting and huh. like huh. the communication
0: is way off. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. What's like, you sort of, I'm, I'm reading, here's a story uh, and then I'll, I'm, I'm aware of time. So I'll, I'll land this plane, but like maybe the last question here for you is, you know, the story I have in my head about you is that you're uh, a deeply progressive like you want to make a world that works an America that works for every American. And you walk in worlds that many progressive don't don't walk in, that you've sat in rooms with with lots of people who would identify as conservative and that you can kind of be a bit more of a bridge builder and a kind of like boundary crosser than than most Americans feel competent or capable or even aware that that would be a worthy thing to do. So like I wonder as you as you've gone on your own journey, what do you think is like, What what's your sense of one of the biggest blind spots or misunderstandings about like any either person on either side of the aisle kind of looking over and going, oh, they care about that because dot, dot, dot. Like what's what, what's a big misunderstanding out there that you actually have seen to be totally or partially not true once you kind of get down into the relationship?
1: Um. And there's so
0: many to choose from. Yeah.
2: Uh,
0: (laughs) Like. Maybe around one of these local issues, like, like, you know, education or homelessness or some of this, some of the stuff that would actually, like you said, get people to the table.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't have a, I mean, I think Reggie has a better view of like all like the blind spots than I do yeah um but i I will share that i think a lot of white men don't get how much power they have Mm -hmm. and and that in privilege and and when they spend it the the account fills up overnight you can keep spending it and so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of like Mm -hmm. well-meaning powerful white men who could very easily spend their power and privilege and not be hurt by it think a lot of folks feel like they'll a lot of a lot of white guys feel like if i if i if i die on this hill i'm I'm done for life it's just not true
2: Mm,
0: mm, mm. so if i'm hearing you right like there's a kind of invitation for white dudes like me and you to realize that we actually have a much deeper reserve of social capital and influence and privilege to like take some risks and have some hard conversations and yeah. not maybe be quite so uh, protective or uh, risk averse. Is that right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Bingo. I mean, life is short.
1: <laughs> it's all made up. Like yeah. our privilege is made up. Just like spend it. It doesn't matter.
0: Uh, <laughs> it's so liberating, man. Well, Brandon, I, uh, this is really fun and meaningful for me. Um, a lot of my conversations in the Wonder Dome uh, sort of circle in, in esoteric terrain purely, which I love, you know, philosophical esoteric terrain. But I really appreciate the way you embody that kind of the, the those layers of kind of the concept of democracy, the economic realities of it, the sort of spiritual potential of it. Um, and yeah, give, give us more of that, please. Uh, it's been really, really <laughs> nourishing to spend some time in that energy.
1: Thank you, Andy. If, if I if I had a choice, I, I probably wouldn't, but I don't think I do. <laughs>
0: that's <laughs> that's right. the, the quest that the trees have spoken, brother, like you gotta, mm-hmm. this is the work. This is, this the, is work. the work. Yeah. Mm. If people want to read your book or like get involved or, you know, maybe in particular some, if there are any white dudes hearing this or any leaders hearing this who might go, yeah, I could, I could own this a bit more. But really, anyone? Where should they go check you, check you out?
1: So brandonpeel.com will point you to books, my company, other things. But that's that's
0: where everything. It's a good hub. Amazing. All right. Well, we uh, we'll include all that in the show notes for sure. And uh, I hope that we get to talk again. Maybe we'll get me you and Reggie together to really yeah get, be fun. get three white guys talking about this shit. That's good. <laughs> <get it. laughs> <laughs> Uh, this has been a lot of fun, Brandon. I really appreciate it, and thanks everyone for listening in. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serquoa, and audio editing and engineering services from Jim Serquoa at Sun Pump Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website mindfulcreative.coach where you can also sign up for my newsletter learn about my transformational coaching work and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power and presence We need you now, more than ever